Hi, everyone. Happy post-Easter, and welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman, and I uh, hope everybody had a great Easter celebration. Again, I know that's over a week ago from the time of the release of this podcast, but uh, it was just yesterday for Drew and I at the time of this recording, and so it's fresh on uh, our minds, and I uh, hope you and yours had a great celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And if you didn't catch the episode last week, uh, Drew and I did some reflections on the implications of the resurrection, looked at the historicity of the resurrection, and the fact that it is the focal point of the Christian faith and tradition and our hope. And so if you missed that episode, it's timeless. It doesn't have to be listened to around Easter. Definitely recommend going back and and taking a listen to that episode. Today, we're going to look at kind of a historical overview of denominations. Uh, Where did they come from? And what's the significance of the emergence of the variety of denominations and uh, ecclesiastical traditions that we see expressed in the world today? And, And I'll say this has been an interesting study for me over the past several years, having not grown up in the church. And then my only real church experience has been at Antioch in Waco. I did go to a couple churches in Tulsa towards the end of my Uh, high school years, but my real involvement has come college and post-college here at Antioch. And I would say the my historical horizon for the church has never extended much beyond, you know, Antioch's been around for, what, 30 years and then was part of a the, the Baptist church. Uh, it was planted out of a Baptist church before that. The Baptist tradition goes back, you know, several hundred years. But I, I never gave much thought personally to that tradition or even our kind of theologically Wesleyan roots at Antioch. Uh, I've been relatively unaware of those traditions for most of my Christian life, and I would say for a lot of Protestantism, our historical horizon goes back to the the Reformers, to Martin Luther, and so on. And that that stretches back maybe four or five hundred years. Uh, but the kind of scope, the big uh, historical narrative scope of Christianity stretches back 2,000 years and even beyond that to our Jewish uh, roots and tradition. And so, uh, Drew, why don't you help fill in some of the gaps for me, for a lot of our listeners? You know, how do you know, look around today and there's hundreds, if not thousands, of expressions of Christianity? Has it always been that way? How did we get here to where we are today? So let's do two things today in our episode. Uh, let's do a historical overview of how we got to where we are. And the way I'll do it is we'll, we'll track chronologically with how this developed, but then with the new denominations or movements that come up, we'll, we'll highlight maybe what are some of the distinctives. Then following that, let's look at what are the main things that have led to splits or the birth of new denominations. And I'll give you a little teaser that it's not necessarily what you think it's going to be. And I've identified, I think, two primary things that have given rise to all the denominations. But then I want to end where, on the one hand, I'm in so many conversations these days about ecumenism and how can the church come back together and answer to Jesus's prayer in John 17 and what does unity look like. And so on the one hand, you know, of course, we should lament the divisions in the church. But on the other hand, I want to make the claim today that on many things, we're not nearly as divided as we think we are. And so I, I think appreciating the broad stroke of what God has done in the church, and maybe even some of the things that are highlighted in denominations. So I think then um, in the overview of how we got to where we are and the causes of distinction in the church, at times even becoming division in the church, 
is in danger of masking the significant unity that the Church Universal continues to share together. And I think it's in that unity, and maybe even looking at some of the historic causes of divisions gives us a few opportunities to engage in fresh unity. So let's start with an overview of how we got to where we are. And the story begins where, for the first many centuries of the Church, there was only one Church. And this is the Church of the New Testament era, the Patristic era, and on. And even though there was one single church, around the same time that Constantine split the Roman Empire, where you had a Western and Eastern Empire, is where we see the first seeds of division taking place in the church. And this eventually culminated in the 1054 formal split between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. But for all intents and purposes, this split had occurred many centuries prior to that. And sources for it were as much as anything, language and politics, you had two very different systems, and at that time, religion was caught up with state power, and so in the West, that had fragmented, and it had grown into a a feudal system, and there were these attempts to reclaim the glory of the Western Roman Empire, but that was all pretty futile, and there'd even been a pretty significant ethnic change, so it went from being the ethnic Latins to now becoming all of these Northern European, Germanic tribes, people like that, that had largely risen to power and gave rise to many of the current nation-states across Europe. In the East, however, the Eastern Roman Empire that was Greek-speaking, that was centered in Constantinople, continued all the way up until the 1300s, so, I mean, nearly a thousand years after Rome was sacked for the first time. And so you just see, you know, political differences, they were speaking different languages, and not a lot of interaction between the two groups. The formal cause for the split, however, had to do with the Pope's authority. Now, where this came to a head was where the Roman Catholic Church wanted to change the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, and it's known as the Floki Clause, where the Catholic Church changed the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father to proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, unless you're very deep in Trinitarian theology, that might not mean much to you, but the reason it was so significant, at one level at least, for the Orthodox Church wasn't just the fact that the change was made, but it was how it was made where the Catholic Church had started to teach this relatively recent doctrine of the papal authority over the Church. And so it was then out of this that the Pope had the authority to change something as significant as the formative creed in the life of the Church. So what the Orthodox Church was objecting to was how the decision was made just as much as the decision itself that was made. So to better understand this, historically, the way the Church was overseen was through bishops that would meet together in church councils. There are five of these that are uncontested and are considered universal church councils. Um, But then there were several others after that that were predominantly Greek or Latin, different branches of the church that would meet together to work out different points of theology. But there were no more universal church councils, at least that were canonically accepted by all Christians. And so essentially what's happening in this split is that The Roman Catholic Church is saying the Pope has the authority to make a decision like that, while the Orthodox Church is saying it's only through church councils that we can define weighty matters of doctrine or for sure to edit a creed or something of that significance. So they're not denying the authority of the Bishop of Rome. They're just saying his authority is limited to Rome or the church is under his care. And while at the same time, there are bishops or what we now know as metropolitans in the Orthodox Church that exercise a similar authority, and it's only when we all come together. And that probably remains the single greatest sticking point, at least between Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, even though there's been a lot of gains in recent years. So if I'm going to take those two, a key idea still within the Catholic Church is that the Church is the living incarnation of Christ, and it exists in the grace of God and is continually nourished by the sacraments. So the Catholic Church would understand it's the Church itself is a sacrament, 
It's a means of grace. And then because of that, the order of the church is important. And so the Pope is not exercising authority because he's a good guy. The Pope is exercising authority because the whole order of the church is meant to reflect the body of Christ in the world today. Just as Jesus is the head of the church, in a very macro sense, the Pope is the head of the visible church on the earth today. And that's important for having an orderly church to represent the grace of God. In orthodoxy, a key idea is participation in the life of God. And for an Orthodox Christian, this is seen every Sunday in the Divine Liturgy, where their way of approaching church and worship is even different maybe than in the West, where it's out of the worship that we then encounter God and do the theology. And in Orthodox doctrine, they have this idea of theosis, and that's and at least in our circles, that isn't that dissimilar from being filled with the Spirit or transformed or in later Methodist traditions, entire sanctification. But it's this full participation where you get caught up and transformed in the life of God. And I think that's a distinctive idea behind orthodoxy. Now, disclaimer here, I'm just giving a few ideas. I'm not saying this is all that these church traditions are. There's obviously a lot more to it. But uh, what I am trying to highlight is what are some of the central components of it? Okay, that brings us to the Reformation, and in past episodes, we've talked at length about some of the causes for that. But what are the denominations that came out of it? First is Lutheran, and this is obviously Martin Luther, and a key idea behind Lutheranism is forensic justification. It's a focus on what God has done for us rather than what we need to do for God. So it's this radical view of saving grace that's accessed by faith, and that's where you get the solas, you know. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, sola gratis, it's only by grace, sola fide, only by faith, these different things. And, and the key move that's being made here is that what constitutes the church is not just its continuity with the historic church in this concept of apostolic succession. So you have this church as the living body of Christ that outlives any person, and we live in alignment with that. What Luther is the first to do, but many after follow, is saying that there's another element here and that the church is constituted by living in light of Scripture. And Scripture becomes the norm of the church, and it's only grounded in the grace of God that's accessed by faith. And it's not to say the other stuff doesn't matter. Sacraments matter. Church hierarchy matters. Um, There's many thoughtful thinkers that came out of this era, but those other things cannot replace the scriptural foundation and the grace of God that's accessed by faith. That has to be central in the life of the church and where there is an incongruence between the two. In other words, where the tradition, the hierarchy, even the apostolic succession is not in alignment with what we see in scripture or our understanding of the grace of God that transforms us, then scripture must be seen as the final authority and what matters most in constituting the church. Luther is the first to go down that road, but after him, obviously, a lot of other people follow. Now, Reformed theology is not that dissimilar from Luther, and and so um, a lot of the distinction that emerged actually more had to do with language, um, where Lutheranism was the state church in Germany. Reformed churches grew up in a lot of different places, the Netherlands, Scotland, Switzerland, places like that. And so a lot of the development probably just occurred because of that reason. But there are some doctrinal distinctions or maybe different points of emphasis that take place One of these we see in the sacraments, and that was the initial cause for the split. Uh, Another one that maybe is a bit more prominent, at least in our understanding today, is the idea of predestination and God foreordaining things. And really, I see all that as maybe just a symptom of a, a bigger distinction, and that is the Reformed development of doctrine and philosophy and just how all of it points back to God in the world today and encompassing all areas of life. A third great stream coming out of the Reformation is the Anabaptist movements. 
And these were a group that split off from the Reformed denominations, and this would be in modern times, groups like the Mennonites. And uh, you know, a, a big idea behind this is this concept of getting back to the roots of Christianity or restorationism. And so if you're part of a church that wants to go back to the New Testament and reads the New Testament as how the church should be today, this is where you can trace the origins of that thought. And for them, they made a radical move of even splitting off um, in a society where there was only one church. And so it, the issue was, and so if you could go back to that time, there, there was not a Catholic church and a Lutheran church and a Reformed church in the same neighborhood. It had to do with what country you lived in or what city you lived in. But there was only one church in that city, and it was just an issue of what one church that was going to be. But the Anabaptists came along, and they, they started a separate church that was meant to be comprised of true believers or disciples, and they were advocating for this type of pure church. And that's why a lot of them, even still to this day, are pretty isolated, because they would withdraw to live out becoming this pure church. The, the streams from that are pretty small as far as modern developments go, but their thought is incredibly powerful in the church today. Many ideas that we would take for granted came from the Anabaptist. And then that brings us to the Anglican. And Anglicanism, uh, a big idea behind them is to embrace a middle way of tethering to the tradition while embracing the need for reformed. The Anglican concept of church is not that dissimilar from the Orthodox in the sense that um, they're not advocating a radical break like some of these other groups might be, but what they're saying is that the Pope overstepped his authority in claiming to be over all of the church, and instead the Roman Catholic Pope could be a leader among equals, but ultimately it's the bishops as a whole that make up the church. And because of that, you know, even though Anglicans would take a more Protestant view on several theological points, it flows downstream from their understanding of authority. Essentially, what they're saying behind all of this is that it's as the bishops come together that provides the place for reform, not just the formal hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, so just to, to recap what I, I hear you saying, Drew, that there was essentially one church, the Catholic Church, Catholic meaning universal, for really the first thousand years of the church, at least on paper. Now, functionally, there was a, a split emerging between East and West as early as the fourth century, uh, but that wasn't finalized or that didn't culminate until 1054 AD. And then after that, you you have, for another four or 500 years, you have these two branches of the church. And actually, I'd, I'd be curious, I don't know much about the Syriac church. I'd be curious if you do, Drew. I, it's not a stream of the church that I've read much about, um, but that kind of branch of the church that uh, found its roots in, at Antioch, but then spread eastward, uh, even the, the tradition of Thomas taking the gospel into India. And could that be a third kind of expression of the church in those first, you know, 10 centuries of the church? But that notwithstanding, the, um, the, really the presence of just these kind of two main streams of the church for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, obviously distinct expressions within cultural contexts uh, in different time periods, uh, but it really wasn't until the, the Reformation that you have the emergence of some of these other key streams, Lutheranism, the Reformed tradition, Anabaptists, and Anglicans, all around kind of this notion of authority, kind of responding to the, the overreach, the supposed over, overreach of the Roman Catholic Church. Is that a fair overview so far? Yeah, I think it's a good overview. And I, I intentionally left out the Syriac or Nestorian Church. Um, that The growth of that church, probably the key distinctive factor is that it was growing outside of the footprint of the Roman Empire. So it was Persia and eastward was where it had its roots. There was a formal doctrinal split that took place at the Council of Chalcedon, and um, the Eastern churches followed um, what was later condemned in the West 
as a heretic, uh, Nestorius, who he had a view of Jesus that Jesus was not one person, but two persons, a divine and human person fused together. And the rest of the church condemned that teaching as heretical, and I think for good reason. Now, um, having studied some of that, I would be very surprised if that made any kind of impact on an average Christian, because you have to really wrap your mind around some pretty intense theological and philosophical concepts. So I think for most people, that was a church like any other, and it was a very large church. Up until about 1000 AD, there was more Christians in that church than there were in the Roman Catholic Church in the West. The reason why, though, it tends to get left out these days um, probably more than anything is that, uh, you know, a few centuries later, it was almost entirely wiped out um, with Mongol invasions, Timor Lane, other groups like that that came through. And it was always a minority church, so much more subjected to persecution. And actually, even in, in recent times, ISIS and some of these other terrorist groups have stamped out a lot of the last vestiges of this. And so, so you will see these Christians enduring. Some of them formally align themselves with the um, Orthodox Church, so they've kind of come full circle. And some continue in, in parts of the world today, um, even some of the original Christians in India, for example, um, or some of the first Christians in China, though I don't think there's any um, continual churches that have existed since that time in China. I think it was wiped out and then came back. So yeah, it's a fascinating story, but I'm going to leave that out today just for the sake of simplicity. So let's get into um, some renewal movement. So you have the first phase of the Reformation, you get into renewal, where you see pietism, um, and that emerged predominantly out of German Lutheranism. And the key idea here is that uh, we want to have a warm relationship with God rather than a cold religion of the mind. So it's a lot more to do with how we live our faith than it is any formal teaching. You know, I think of stuff we'd say, it's about a relationship, not a religion. I mean, that's a very pietistic statement. And a lot of it that they innovated was their practices, like small groups, really emphasizing the reading of Scripture, though that goes back to Luther, and things like that. It's the individual person growing in a relationship or personal relationship with God. Methodism was a Reformed movement in the Anglican Church, and they embraced a lot of pietism, but they added to it this doctrine of entire sanctification, and meaning that we can actually be fully transformed into the image of God. And for those that would uphold this teaching, of course, they're going to say it's a mysterious process. We don't even know when we arrive, but let's have a view that God can fully transform us rather than live thinking that I'm just a sinner and there's nothing that can change inside of me. It's like God is in you. He's changing you. And they, they got the name Methodist because they had methods. They embraced the call to discipleship and really believed that it was going to change their life. And um, we've talked about it on this podcast, but a, a dynamic movement. And then around that same time is the Baptist, and they borrowed from several different groups, um, but I would say a, a key idea behind it is the priesthood of all believers and the autonomy of the local church. So they kind of merged some of these other Protestant thought with some elements of the Anabaptist, and this is definitely where that explodes around the world today and why some of the Anabaptist thought is so influential. Um, so even though Baptists are not Anabaptists, but despite the similarity in name, they did embrace some of the ideas that have given them rise around the world. And then in recent years, three others to mention are Pentecostals, and um, key idea behind that is being baptized in the Holy Spirit or experiencing the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of that was um, developed in Methodism, and then um, the Pentecostals um, in many ways took it further, but I think you see some of the, those same concepts in early Methodism. Another modern stream is post-colonial, and this is um, indigenous churches and countries that are contextualizing apart from their European origins. And so it's not so much there's any single denominational initiative, but it's more about having the opportunity to have a, a truly local church in different countries. And that's huge in Africa, but other parts of the world. And then lastly um, is non-denominational, and that's very recent, but it's, it's typically evangelistic in its orientation, and it's going to 
pick a lot of the different elements. Uh, most non-denominational churches have their roots in some type of Baptist or Methodist or Pentecostal, or in some cases, some combination of all three of those origins. And typically what it's trying to do is avoid all the denominational infighting that takes place, draw from some of these different elements, and really be a church for its community to reach those around them. Great, so that's a lot, but that's a helpful framework, I think, to see kind of this this tree of expression that emerges throughout the centuries. But Drew, how would you make sense of this in terms of like what I uh, am hearing you say, and, and even as I'm looking at the notes here in front of me and, and uh, from my own readings, that these are generally not doctrinal differences that are held between these various expressions. Now, uh, we would have to make a distinction here between some of the, the more Orthodox doctrines, kind of these first principles uh, based on what Al Mohler ca- calls second-order beliefs and third-order beliefs, uh, first-order beliefs being our assurances, second-order beliefs being our convictions, third-order beliefs being our opinions. But at the level of kind of these first-order beliefs, soteriological beliefs, these aren't primarily doctrinal differences, right? Are these more praxis differences, authority differences? How would you, how would you articulate that? Yeah, and I think this is really huge for us in thinking of the unity of the church, because I think a lot of times we suppose that it's a major doctrinal conflict. That's not the case, really. And it's not to say that there's not dispute of doctrine, but normally the doctrinal disputes come from something else. And so I would say if I had to pick two things, or you know, maybe I'll add a bonus third, that tend to be the cause for the distinction and the division of the church, the first is polity. Who governs the church seems to be a really important and significant question. And we, we have covered that as a standalone podcast episode, that I think this is one that if there's anything hindering church unity today, this is going to be it, of who, who has the ability to make the call. And I'll give a suggestion at the end of, of a way I think we can look at that that might help us in our quest for unity. But I do want to acknowledge that this has become a major sticking point in a lot of different places. It's just fundamentally different if you think that there's bishops who exist in apostolic succession, and so they get to make the call because not because they're a special person, but because they stand in continuity with the church historic, you know, and that would be a view that both Anglican and Orthodox would have, though there's obviously going to be other considerations for the church, and, and that would be the view, for example, of Orthodox church or even types of Anglicanism. Um, you have the Catholic view that, yes, there are bishops, but there is a leading bishop that is the Pope. And it's the Pope, and and really not the Pope singular as a person. It's not like the Pope wakes up one day and just decides he wants to do something, but it's really more representative of a hierarchy in the church that is the visible means of unity for the church. And it's that group that's entrusted with that authority. So it's not the bishops as a whole, but it's the church hierarchy. And that is ultimately in the Pope, but it's the College of Cardinals and a bunch of other groups as well. And, And they supply what's needed to have a united church. And then that's really different than, you know, think of a congregational church where it's the priesthood of all believers and we gather together and we make decisions and all of us have the Holy Spirit versus elders are appointed and um, those elders are then appointed to make decisions on behalf of the church. I mean, you just, you know, all these different groups have different ways of looking at it and those do um, continue to be a pretty significant point of distinction. Second big thing that has led to this is renewal. And, and ultimately, I believe this is a very positive thing. So maybe if the first one is problematic, Um, and oftentimes get caught up in politics and a quest for power, 
renewal, I, I believe, is the work of the Spirit in the church and is renewing things. And if you actually look at how many denominations formed, they did not break off from the existent church, but they were kicked out of the existent church. Uh, you know, they came along and said, like, what the status quo is not right. And they would start renewal movements, often based upon small groups, prayer, the experience of the Holy Spirit in, in some way, you know, at least that's how we would, in our time, interpret it. Um, they might have used different language in their time. But these were the things that led to it. And in so many of, the, of these denominations, that's what happened, is it was renewal movements from within that ultimately couldn't exist with what was. And that did lead to separation. And then the last one that it, it's, you know, this is one of those factors in life that is surprisingly powerful that often gets overlooked, and that's going to be geography and language. You know, it just kind of makes sense. It's like if you're in a culture, your culture is going to have questions, concerns, problems. Your language is going to describe the limitations of what you can think or talk about. And so where there are significant geographic and linguistic differences, there's also going to be differences in church. And over time, that can lead to disputes on doctrine. I mean, even, you know, I was studying this in, in the first millennia of the church, uh, the difference in the Greek and Latin languages, where the same concept they would employ different words that had slightly different meaning. And so that then led to different ways of understanding theology, not on a first-order doctrine like you're saying, Mick, but when I'm having a, a dispute with somebody about how to articulate something, if I'm using Greek and you're using Latin, even if we translate each other's terms, um, we're operating in a different thought world, and that is going to lead to some problems. And so, you know, think of what's happening in the church around the world today, and it certainly makes sense if I'm in an impoverished African country versus in, you know, a, a, an affluent United States there are going to be differences, and that is going to lead to some type of distinction between the churches. Great. So thank you, Drew, for this. This is a really helpful overview. Um, bring this down to street level. How should you know just the average person, how should we think about all this? What impact does this have on our daily lives? Yeah, I'll give a few, a few ideas here. Um, first, like you said at the beginning, Mick, it is good to know where you come from. So if I'm thinking of myself as part of the Antioch movement, I can trace my origins actually from several different sources, um, from the charismatic movements, charismatic Pentecostal movements. I can look at Baptist history, and then I can also look at Methodism. And if you were to analyze Antioch, you would see elements of all three of those things in pretty significant ways. And then that would lead you back to earlier stages in the Reformation. So you go to pietism, and you certainly see that. It's, it's fascinating reading some of these early documents like Pia Desideria by Spinner, and you just see it. It's amazing, like his language, how much we still use his language, and yet most of us would be completely unaware of what he wrote. And, and so, you know, I just look at some of those groups, and it's helpful to know where you came from and why, and maybe some things that, that we do just automatically without thinking of it, you realize, like, wow, that, that was a major development in the history of the church and something that I want to learn to appreciate. Now, you might be coming from a different circle. Maybe you're a charismatic Catholic. You know, you can look at all the development in the Catholic Church and then the integration with some of the charismatic re renewal movements or Reformed Church, if that's your background. You know, so it's just good to know where you came from and why. Um, it's also helpful to know where other people are coming from. And what I have found is there is beautiful theology and great reasoning behind every branch of the Church. Like, there's really rich stuff. And so if I'll take the time to better appreciate my own history but also appreciate somebody else's history— I always find I come out better from the exchange. Second thing to consider, though, is that there is a divided church, and I don't believe that that's God's intention. And, and I do believe that we need to be looking at this just to say, how do we better partner with fellow brothers and sisters? And sometimes understanding the distinctions even help us to know where are some of the challenges and the problems. And you know, I think if we look at all of these, you know, what's interesting, if we, if we take this idea of polity and renewal, on the one hand, how do, how do we understand authority in the church? And is there a common ground we can all develop? 
is something that I think of a lot, you know, and for me, I'm very interested in looking at what does it mean if, if Jesus is the head of the church, which I think all Christians can agree to, and if that is expressed through the work of the Holy Spirit, which again, I think all Christians can agree to, built on the foundation of the word, which all Christians agree to, and some, some place for the traditions of the church, which we're going to disagree exactly on where that lies, but I think we can all appreciate how the Holy Spirit has led the church in history. You know, that, that provides some great starting blocks for unity, even if it doesn't solve every question. And, you know, typically I find when I'm in these places, it's a heart posture as much as it is an intellectual posture. And if I'm submitted to Christ in all things, if Jesus is king and I am not, my life is his, I've taken up my cross to follow him, and I genuinely am willing to lay down everything for the sake of Jesus. If I'm willing to do that, then I can link arms with brothers and sisters from every one of those denominations if they're also willing to do that. And I believe that in those moments then where we have to sort out some of these questions of polity, we'll land on our feet just because Jesus is the king. But the flip side of that is if we're not really submitted to him, then all we're left with is human power and human power struggle. And I don't see any way to unite if that's at the core of who we are. I think Jesus has set this up to where it's only in a thorough, genuine acknowledgement of his lordship in all things that there's any hope for us to be a united church. And then lastly, this is where I think we can be encouraged, is that despite some of the divisions and the distinctions, there is a tremendous amount of unity in the church. And I'll just give a sampling, and um, I've referenced this book before, but Roger Olson's The Mosaic of Christian Belief, that's the premise of his book, where he just goes through and charts, what do all Christians affirm? And, you know, just to give a sampling of the ideas here, is that Christians affirm theology is the self-revelation of God to humanity. These are not the best of human thoughts about God, but this is God revealing himself to us. All Christians affirm the authority of Scripture. Um, we understand it differently, exactly how that authority is manifested, but we all agree that that Scripture is authoritative in the life of the church. We affirm the Trinity. We affirm the attributes and characteristics of God. There's some nuance to it, but fundamentally, who God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we affirm that humanity is made in the image of God, that humanity is inherently sinful. We affirm the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We affirm that Jesus is both God and man. We affirm that Jesus' sacrifice is atonement for our sin. I mean, it's incredible the amount of affirmation that takes place, even on things that are disputed like ethics. There's a tremendous amount of Christian unity on ethics. Sexual ethics, you know, is a real prominent thing. But if you look at the history of the church in all these denominations, it's only very recently that many of this is even called into question. Ethics of what does it mean to follow God, love for the neighbor, concern for the poor, you know, all these different things. Now, what I'm not saying is that Christians have not been profoundly hypocritical on many of our ethics. Of course, that's true, but that's also why we have these cycles of reform. There's something in what we jointly affirm that creates the grounds for renewal because we all agree in the same concept of being conformed into the image of Christ in all things. And then lastly, we affirm our eschatology, that Christ is returning. We affirm that there is heaven, that there is hell. You know, so we could just keep going. I mean, there's a lot of affirmation. And if I actually think about the things that affect me the most in my faith, I can turn around and find that other believers, we all believe the same things on these. Is there some nuance? Absolutely. There are some other issues. Exactly how are we saved where there is some distinction? And, you know, so I'm not, I'm not trying to gloss over maybe some larger theological topics. And if you're a professional theologian, of course, you could point out distinction on everything I've just said. But I think if we can look at where we have unity, um, we'll encourage ourselves because it is very easy to see all the division. But uh, maybe another way of looking at it is let's also see where there is unity because I think that points us to who God is. It's great. And keep in mind when you look at the scriptures, the narrative arc of scripture runs from unity in the, in the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, to fragmentation and disunity 
from Genesis 3 through Revelation 20, but ends once again in, in the unification of all things in Jesus Christ and the the promises in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 that all things will be reconciled in Jesus, and we get to participate in that. And so I would hope that we, you and I, Drew, our families, our churches, would willingly submit to Jesus, like you're saying, now, and seek unification, seek unity among the body of Christ, humbling ourselves, working through these difficult, complex issues, but with a spirit of charity and grace for one another. So hopefully this is encouraging content for you today. Thanks as always for tuning into Ideology, and we will catch you next week.